Well, good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. I hope that you've had a good week in the Lord and have come this morning eager to worship our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. Well, you can go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. This morning we are going to be looking at verses 15 to 17 in Genesis 2 as we continue our time of focusing on the covenant God placing his covenant image bearer in a covenant place. And today we were going to see in our passage the stipulations of the covenant that God makes with Adam here in the Garden of Eden. And I hope that as we are doing this, that for those of you who were here last week, that you will make the connection between what's happening in our passage and what happens after our passage today to what our brother Tim preached in his sermon last week because it is Adam's failure that we are going to see in a few weeks to this covenant here in Genesis 2 that is the reason for Pastor Tim's sermon last week in Philippians 2. Brothers and sisters, our Savior took on human flesh took on the form of a servant and was obedient even to the point of death on a cross because Adam failed to be obedient in the Garden of Eden, as we will see in the future. But we will see today in our passage the command that God gives to him that he must obey, but we know that he fails to obey. Well, let's get started by reading our passage, Genesis chapter 2 beginning in verse 15. Hear now the words of the only true and living God. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his holy and infallible word. You may be seated. Well, this morning we're going to look at our passage and two points today. Our first point is going to be the covenant God, the covenant man, and the covenant place where we will look at verse 15 and then we will move on from there to our second point, looking at verses 16 and 17 and seeing the covenant command. Before we do this, let us go to the Lord in prayer together asking For his help, that I would rightly divide his word, that you would rightly hear it, that we would be encouraged by it, that we would grow in our knowledge of our king and in our obedience to him. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, you have gathered us together to hallow your name in our midst. And you have given us a desire to gather in order that your name would be glorified. Father, we thank you that you are working in us and causing us to desire to glorify you. And we ask that our time together, Father, would do this very thing that we would grow in our understanding of your word and what is happening here in these early chapters of Genesis. And we trust, Father, in your promise that the increase of our knowledge increases our faith and the increase of our faith has the effect of increasing our love for you and our appreciation that you have set us free from the dominion of sin and freed us to obey you as your sons. 
Oh, Father, help us this morning by your Spirit. Lord Jesus, as you are ruling over us as our King at this very moment, we look to you at the right hand of the Majesty on high. With eyes of faith, trusting that you who loved us, who laid down your life for us, that you are going to sanctify us. And that you are going to use our time together today in ways perhaps that we recognize and perceive and in ways that we do not perceive, that you are going to use them to cause us to persevere to the end. That you're going to use this day, Lord Jesus, we believe in faith, that you will use it to see to it that we who you shed your blood for will be presented without spot or blemish before the Father at your return. Oh, Father, we recognize also that we are not the only ones gathered. Even here in our midst, we know that there are unbelievers among us, and so we ask that as your Son is ruling over us, that part of that would be adding to our number. That you would open the heart of the unbelievers among us to receive the gospel. That today would be the day of salvation for them. Father, that by the end of our time together today, that they could sing songs of praise and thanksgiving to you with a new heart. And Father, that they could receive the announcement of your blessing upon your people for the first time today. Father, we think of these things just concerning our own gathering here, but we know that we have many brothers and sisters gathered in different places, that we want to lift them up to you as well, Father, asking that you would glorify yourself in all of these same ways in their midst. We ask that you would do this at Grace Reform Baptist Church in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania. And with our brothers and sisters at Covenant Reformed Church here in West Jefferson. Oh, Father, please use our brothers and sisters for the advancement of your kingdom near us and far away from us. Father, we ask that you would use your word in their midst in the exact same ways that we desire to see you use it in our midst to reveal sin in our lives, to grant us repentance of that, to grant us faith to strive after new obedience. Oh, Father, and to save the lost among them. Please do this work in their midst. Father, we also lift up our persecuted brethren across the world, especially in Turkey. Father, we ask that you would sustain them by your grace, that you would protect them in your kind providences, and that you would give them the mind of Christ such that they would count it a joy to suffer persecution for their king and our king. Oh, Father, and help us to help us who worship in peace and in comfort. Help us to bear the burden of our brothers and sisters who do not have such a luxury. And help us to learn from them, to be willing to receive, though now it is just reviling, but to be willing to receive it and count it a joy to receive it. but also prepare us if there is coming a day in our lives, whether here in our own country or in somewhere else, 
where we will endure physical persecution. Father, teach us and prepare us for that. Father, as we turn our attention now to what you have brought before us in our passage this morning here in Genesis 2, help us to hear your word and to be doers of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A farmer once said, the hardest thing about milking cows is that they never stay milked. This morning, as we continue focusing in on what is happening in the Garden of Eden, we are going to see in our passage today that as soon as God gives Adam the command that we will see in verses 16 and 17, as soon as God does this, we will see that Adam finds himself in a similar situation to that of the farmer whose cows never stay milked. Just as a farmer can never stop milking his cows, as soon as God gives Adam this command, he can never start eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But as we are going to see today, it was not God's intention for Adam to always have this threat of death hanging over his head. This was not going to be Adam's eternal condition. And I point this out here at the beginning so that as we are going through this garden narrative, we can see clearly that although Adam was created good, he was created sinless, although the Garden of Eden was beautiful and there was no death in the world, although all of that is true, There's something even better for which Adam was created. And when you hear that, you may begin scratching your heads and you may start thinking that I've lost my mind. What could possibly be better than what Adam has here in the garden? Well, I'm glad you asked. The one thing that could have made Adam's existence better And what it was in the garden would have been for Adam to no longer have the ability to sin. Now, if you've never thought about that before, that's probably going to cook your noodle for a little while. But it's obviously true. If you are a follower of Christ, you know without a doubt that to be able to or to not be able to sin at all is far better than to have the ability to sin. So I hope that as we are going through our passage this morning that you will see not only what is happening here in the Garden of Eden, but also how what is happening here in the Garden also helps us to see and to savor and to appreciate what our Savior accomplished for us in His life, death, and resurrection because one of the things that our Savior purchased for us, beloved, by His blood is that after your death or at His second coming, Jesus Christ has made it so that you will never be able to sin again. And not just that you won't sin again, you won't be able to sin. And if you have that hunger and thirst for righteousness bubbling up within your heart, you know what a glorious day that will be. Well, we're going to be looking at these things as we go through our passage. Let's get started this morning in our first point, the covenant God, the covenant man, in the covenant place. Look with me again at verse 15 as we begin our first point. We read in verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now it's important as we begin, and you know that I love to review, but it's important that as we begin 
that you remember from our time two weeks ago that every time we read in our English translations and we see the word LORD in all caps as it is here, every time we see this, what we are seeing is God's covenant name, Yahweh, being used. As we talked about here in chapter 2, as Moses moves us from the creation to the Garden of Eden narrative, we have an explosion of God's covenant name being used. In chapters 2 and 3 alone, God uses, or Moses uses, God's covenant name 20 times, and our passage today is right in the heart of that. And you can see that Yahweh God gets used twice in these three verses. So right here at the beginning, we need to bring to the forefront of our minds that it is the covenant God that is taking and putting and commanding Adam in our passage. So as we can see, as we look at verse 15, the covenant God takes the man and puts him in the Garden of Eden. Now, As we've been going through the book of Genesis, by this time it should be obvious to everyone that man is special. Man is different. He is unique. Remember from the sixth day of creation that man was God's highest creation. He is the only thing made in God's image. And not only did God make man in his own image, but God put him in charge. God put man in charge of the earth. He gave him dominion. He put him in charge over every living thing on the face of the entire earth. God made man the ruler, the king over creation. So God here in our passage takes his image bearer, this king of creation, and puts him in the Garden of Eden. So what we saw two weeks ago in verse 9 gets repeated here in verse 15 of our passage today. And the fact that God puts his image bearer in this garden means that the garden is a special place. Of all the places in all the universe that God could have chosen to put his image, he chose to put man in the Garden of Eden. And as we're thinking about this special place, we must not forget that there are also a couple of other things that are special about this place. Look back up in verse 9. And remember that although God plants all kinds of trees in the garden, in the middle of garden, in the middle of this special place, God singles out two special trees. You can see it in verse 9. You have all kinds of trees, nice to look at, good for food, and then God singles out two special trees And he does so by not only putting them in the middle of the garden, but also by giving them names, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So I hope that you're getting this picture because what is happening here is really important. Genesis is a book of beginnings. It's a book about how everything Started, it started with the creation of all things, and then it climaxed with the creation of man as God's image bearer. And the picture you should be seeing from what we've looked at so far during our time in Genesis is God making his image bearer the king over his creation and then putting him in a special place with special trees. As we will see in a minute, God gives him work to do. This is the picture that should be developing in your minds as we're going through Genesis, and it really couldn't be any more important because what happens here in Genesis 2 and 3 in the Garden of Eden is the reason why everything else happens. Not just in the Bible, but what happens here in Genesis 2 and 3 is why everything that has ever happened in the entire history of the world has happened. And this is the case because, as we will learn later on in the Bible, Adam, here in the garden, is representing all mankind. All those who would come 
after him. Here in the Garden of Eden, Adam is our covenant head. His obedience or his disobedience is going to be imputed to, it is going to be given to, it is going to be credited to or passed down to all that come after him. It is going to affect all of his children, all of his grandchildren, all of his great-grandchildren, all the way down to you today. We learn this in passages like Romans 5, which teach us that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. One man brought sin into the world, and death spread to all men, because all sinned when he fell. 1 Corinthians 15, by a man came death. In Adam all die. All those following Adam connected to him as their covenant head die. Because Adam is representing all of his children, all mankind that follows after him, when Adam sinned, we all sinned. And because the wages of sin is death. When Adam fell, death spread to everyone. What happens here in Genesis 2 and 3 is why Cain kills Abel. It's why there's a flood in Noah's day. It's why Abraham, Isaac, and Japheth existed. It's why Israel existed. It's why King David lived. It is why our Savior came into the world. It is why he shed his blood and died on a cross. It is why he rose from the grave on the third day. It is why your grandparents were born. It is why your parents were born. It is why you were born. It is why you are here this very moment. So I'm not sure that I could overstate the importance of what we are looking at this morning. And I know that it's really hard to not skip forward to help us see this, but it's really important that we stay here at this point in the Bible, in Genesis 2, in the Garden of Eden, and see it for what it is. At this point in the Bible, there is no sin in the world. At this point, there is no such thing as death. For living creatures. Can you imagine what it was like for Adam at this point in Genesis 2? No sin, no death, unhindered communion with his creator. And he looks around at creation and it is his domain. The birds of the air are for his benefit. The fish of the sea, the beasts of the ground are for him and they do not flee away from him. I walked out of the building yesterday and birds just scattered. Adam didn't have such a problem. They were not afraid of him. He was their gracious king. When he snuck up on a bird, it turned around and looked. They were not afraid of him. And Adam also was not afraid. If Adam saw a grizzly bear or tiger, he did not shake in his boots. They were under his dominion. They were his. He was not afraid of them. He loved them. Adam was the king of all the creatures of the earth. They were under his rule. And then God makes a special place for Adam to dwell in. If all of that wasn't good enough, God makes for Adam a special place. He speaks words of blessing to him, be fruitful and multiply. And we can see at the end of verse 15 in our passage today that God gives him responsibility. God puts him in the garden and then tells him to work it and keep it. Now the phrase keep it in verse 15, is the first sign, it's the first foreshadowing for us that something's coming. The phrase keep it in verse 15 carries with it the idea that Adam 
had the responsibility to guard the Garden of Eden. So get this picture. At this point, Adam is sinless. And so God takes his sinless son and puts him in this garden and tells him to do his work and to keep watch over this garden, to guard it from any potential intruders. Turn real quickly in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 3. I want to show you something from there. Numbers chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 5 through 10. And as I'm reading, I want you to notice the way the priests and the Levites are instructed to keep the guard. Numbers chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring to the tribe, bring the tribe of Levi near. And set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. Now notice at the end here what they are supposed to do as they keep guard. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. Now, I show you this to point out to you that the language that Moses is using in Numbers 3 for the Levites and for Aaron and his sons to guard the priesthood and the tent of meeting and the tabernacle, this language in Numbers 3 is the same language that Moses uses here in our passage today in the garden when he records that Adam had the responsibility to keep it. Just as Aaron and his sons were to guard the priesthood, just as the Levites were to guard the tabernacle and the tent of meeting, just as they were to put any outside intruders that came in to death, so too here in Genesis 2.15, Adam's work in Eden was not just that of a gardener. But if any unauthorized intruder were to come into the garden in the future, then as it says at the end of verse 15, Adam was to keep it, to guard it. Adam had the responsibility of not only working in the garden, but guarding the garden. And when we hear this, if we've spent much time reading your Bible at all, then your mind is automatically going to begin drifting forward to that intruder that is going to slither his way into the garden in chapter 3. We're going to get to that in a couple of weeks. But for now, we need to stay in our passage and see what's happening here in our passage this morning. We have the sinless Son of God, made in His image, put in a special place to work it, to guard it, to keep it. Now, as we move on to our second point, we will see that Adam is given a command that is going to inform how. He is to work and keep the garden. It's going to inform how he is to exercise dominion over the creatures of the earth. It is going to inform how he is supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So let's move on to our second point today, the covenant command. Look back in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2 with me. and Let's read the command that God gives to Adam. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. After God takes his image, his sinless son, and puts him in the special place of communion with God, what we might call a temple, After God does this, we see in verses 16 and 17 that God gives Adam a special 
command. Now, as we've already seen back up in verse 9 a couple of weeks ago, there were many trees in the garden, but there are two special trees in the middle of the garden. And God puts Adam in this garden and he points at this one tree in the middle of the garden and tells Adam, you cannot eat from that one. And God explains to Adam that if you break this command that I am giving you, If you eat from that tree, the consequence of you doing so is going to be death. Now, from that instant that those words came out of God's mouth and Adam heard them, the very moment that God gives Adam this special command, Adam enters into a time of testing. What many have called a time of probation. Adam cannot fail. He can never break this command. There is no mercy in this command that God is imposing on Adam. Break it just once. Take just one bite of any piece of fruit on this tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you are going to die. Now what has happened here in these two short verses that we just read is that God is putting Adam under a covenant. A covenant that requires perfect, perpetual, entire, and exact obedience. Never failed, not even once. Adam cannot eat of this tree ever. Not in a week, not in a month, not in a hundred years. As long as Adam is in this time of testing, he cannot eat from this tree. Now people have given this covenant different names. The Garden Covenant covenant of life, but it is most well known in our day, and we find it in our confession of faith as the covenant of works. But what is a covenant? Perhaps you're unfamiliar with this language in the first place. So what is a covenant? Put most simply, in the Bible, a covenant is how God has chosen to be in relationship with his creation. And most importantly, with those made in his image. Covenants are the way that God chose to condescend and bless his image. Beloved, you need to understand this. Here in the Garden of Eden, Adam is sinless. Creation is sinless. But as soon as God gives a special command to Adam, the covenant threat, the covenant consequence of sin and death enter into the equation. So the only question at this point is, how long, O Lord? How long will Adam have this threat of death looming over his head? Is this Adam's eternal condition? Just forever the possibility of falling into sin? And receiving the covenant judgment of death, is this as good as it's going to get for Adam? I mean, it's good. Don't get me wrong, it's good. But is the threat of death looming over him for disobedience as good as it's going to get? Fill the earth, exercise dominion, donate from this one tree in the garden. Enjoy me, enjoy communing with me, enjoy filling the earth. All of it, knowledge of the glory of God. Glory glory in this creation. Enjoy communion with me. But is this as good as it can get? Now we know that Adam did eventually eat from the tree, and we know that doing so brought the covenant curse of death. We're going to see this when we get to Genesis 3 but we can also hear it in the words of the prophet Hosea when he brings a charge to Israel in Hosea 6, and he says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. So when we come back to our passage with sinless Adam getting this command from God, The only question at this point here in Genesis 2 is whether or not 
This is Adam's condition for the rest of time. As good as it is here in the garden, is Adam going to live forever with this threat of death hanging over his head? And this question takes us back to the two trees. There's not just one tree with a command attached to it. There's two trees in the middle of the garden with Adam. Now just as we have just seen, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil becomes a covenant command with a covenant threat of death for breaking it. One bite from one piece of fruit will bring death to Adam. Because this is a covenant, it will bring death to everyone that, that Adam is representing. And that is bad news because Adam is representing all mankind. He is our covenant head. He is our covenant representative here in the garden. So one bite is going to bring death and judgment and condemnation to all mankind after him. But the curious thing that our passage to, is that our passage today only deals with one trees, one of these trees, but there's two special trees in the garden. If you look back up to verse 9, you can see in the second half of verse 9 that the other tree is the tree of life. So we must ask ourselves the question, what is the tree of life? What is it doing here in the garden? Why is it pointed out and made special? It's obviously important, but what purpose is it serving? What, if anything, does it represent in this covenant arrangement that God is imposing on Adam here in the garden? Is it just a tree that Adam could eat from on occasion in order to help himself keep living? That doesn't make sense because Adam is already alive. Adam could not get more alive than what he is. We must remember where we are at. This is all happening before the fall. Adam is not decaying so that he needs a tree to give him, to restore him. Adam is not winding down towards death. There is no principle of death at work in Adam. There is no principle of death in the world at this point in the Bible. Adam has immortality at this point in Scripture. He is not dying. He is not decaying. He is going to live forever as long as he obeys. As long as he obeys while God keeps him in this time of testing, in this time of probation. So the thing that is curious about the tree of life is the question, why is it here? Well, in this covenant arrangement that God is entering into with Adam, just as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a covenant threat for disobedience, the tree of life is a covenant promise for obedience. Because covenants don't just have threats. Remember, the point of covenants is God relating with his image bearers. The covenants don't come just with threats. They also come with promises. And that is what the tree of life represents here in the Garden of Eden, a promise. And I'm not just making this up. You can see it in the very next chapter of Genesis. Turn over to Genesis chapter 3. Look at the end of the chapter. Look down at verses 22 to 24. Let me read it real quickly. And I am going to use God's covenant name here, so when you see Lord, hear the translation of it. Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, Yahweh God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard 
the way to the tree of life. We can see at the end of verse 22 that the tree of life in this covenant arrangement between God and Adam represented eternal life, lest he eat from it and live forever. Verse 22 is indicating that eating from this tree means living forever. And so just as one bite from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would have meant death, so too one bite from the tree of life would mean living forever. So in terms of the covenant of works between God and his sinless son here in the Garden of Eden, these two trees in the middle of the garden represent a covenant curse on the one hand for disobedience and a covenant promise on the other for obedience. So this is the covenant of works. Covenant God putting his image bearer, a sinless son, a covenant head, a covenant representative in a covenant place with two special trees, two visible signs that represent a curse for disobedience on the one hand and a promise for obedience on the other. And what is at stake here is what we saw at the very beginning of Genesis chapter 2. Just as God finished his work and then entered into eternal rest, so too if the sinless Son of God in the Garden of Eden finishes his work that the Creator has given him to do, his covenant God will permit him to partake and live forever. He would have moved beyond the threat of death. He would have moved from a time of testing, from a time of probation to having confirmed righteousness. No longer able to sin. After having his righteous obedience confirmed by the covenant God according to the terms of this covenant here in the garden, Adam would have rested from his work and he and all of his offspring after him would live forever without the possibility of sin and death existing. This is what is at stake here in the garden. This is what is at stake when God says to Adam in our passage, do not eat from this tree. You will die. As we prepare to enter into a time of prayer and reflection on these things from our passage today, I want to make three points of application that are flowing from this to us. Number one, brothers and sisters, like Adam, your covenant God has put you in a special place. He has made you a temple and made you a part of a temple as a living stone to work it and to keep it. You, beloved, are the church of the living God. You are the pillar and buttress of the truth in this world, and we know from Ephesians chapter 2 that we are living stones being built together into a holy temple for the Lord. Beloved, we were saved in order that we would live together and that we would work together for the glory of God. As Ephesians 2 says earlier, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. In the church, you are like Adam in the sense that you are to use the gifts and the responsibilities that God has given to you by His Spirit. You are to use those gifts to build up the church, to build up the temple of the living God, to build up the body of Christ, as Ephesians 4, 13 says, until you are to do your labor with the gifts God has given you until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You are to work and to keep and to guard this temple that God has made you a part of as a living stone. But praise God, brothers and sisters, we are not under probation. We are not under probation like Adam. 
I know we tried to keep most of our thoughts today in the Garden of Eden before sin and death entered into the world, but we know that Adam failed. And as we read from 1 Corinthians 15, in Adam all die. Adam failed his probation, but God so loved the world that he sent another Adam. He sent his sinless son into the world, and our Savior Jesus Christ passed his probation. He always did what the Father commanded him, even to the point of death on the cross, as our brother Tim preached to us last week. Beloved, he has saved you. He has made you his own. He has done the work for you. You are not on probation. You have confirmed righteousness because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed, given to you. It has been credited to you. And in this world, while you await the return of our blessed Savior, you are to continue his ministry as his helper to seek and save that which is lost. And so, beloved, as you labor to work and to keep this temple of the living God that he has made you a part of, be exhorted by the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Our second point of application Unbelievers among us, whether young or old, the wages of sin is death. You, like Adam, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because you have not repented of your sins, because right now you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, you remain united to the first Adam. You remain united to Adam in this covenant of works that we have looked at today. But that's only the beginning of the bad news for you because there is no hope in this covenant. By works of the law, no one can be saved. Because the covenant of works was already broken, it's already been broken, it cannot give you eternal life. You cannot do enough good things to earn eternal life. You can't dig enough wells. You cannot feed enough poor people to earn eternal life. That is not your problem. Your problem is that you are guilty in Adam. And you have your own sin to account for. And no amount of good works can do it because God requires perfection. And he has never lowered his standard. And all we have to do to know that is true is to look at the cross. To look at the one who gave perfection. And then see, when he became our sin, what happened? Unbelieving friend, you are incapable of being a good enough person. You are incapable of saving yourself. God is not going to accept the best you can do because the best you got isn't good enough. And you need to know that God doesn't accept the best you got. You need to know that something is going to have to drive you out of yourself and to look to another. God has always required perfect, perpetual, entire, and exact obedience. And no one after Adam has ever given it except one. 
To unbelieving friends among us, imagine yourself now standing before God, standing before your Creator, guilty and condemned in Adam with eternity, eternity before you. Eternal death forever. Oh, we suffer in this life, but we get relief from suffering. There is no hope of relief in eternity. Oh, friend, what a miserable condition you are in. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will open your eyes to that miserable estate, and I pray that he will now open your ears to hear this last point of application. Our last application today is the good news. The good news that though we are guilty in Adam, though we cannot give enough good works to make ourselves right with God, he sent a second Adam. He sent a last Adam who succeeded in all the ways the first one failed. The first Adam and all those united to him are condemned by the covenant of works, but God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son into the world that whosoever would believe on him would not die, but would have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, this is our joy. Unbelieving friends, this is your hope. This is the offer of pardon. The good news is that Jesus Christ has made a covenant of grace where we can be forgiven of our guilt. We can be forgiven of our sins by believing in the promises of God through covenant. He promised that everyone who believed in the one who lived a perfect life and died for their sins, that they would be saved. And Jesus Christ, always doing what the Father commanded him and then dying for his people, purchased that redemption Brothers and sisters and unbelieving friends among us, the grace of the covenant of grace is that Jesus Christ has done the work for us. Brothers and sisters, we are not under probation. Our salvation cannot be lost because we fail. Our salvation cannot be lost because of our works, because we are not trusting and hoping in our works. Jesus has done it for us. That is why we must be united to him. That is why there is salvation in no other name. Because he is the only one who has ever done it. Brothers and sisters, having been united to Christ in faith, we can no more lose our salvation than he can lose what he purchased with his blood. Unbelieving friend, do not believe the world's lie that this life is all that it is, uh, that, all, that is, this life is all that there is, because you can only know that by dying, and then it's too late. This life is not all that there is and do not believe the lie of the coexist crowd of religious pluralism that says all roads lead to God. Live the best life you can. Do good to others. Love your mama. Feed the poor. Work, work, work. And God's going to accept you because you're a good person. Live by the life that you've got whether Christian or Muslim or Hindu or atheist or pagan out in the middle of somewhere worshiping idols. Just do the best you can. Live according to your light, and it's all going to be all right in the end because God accepts your best. 
Unbelieving friend, that is a lie from the lisping serpent. God requires perfection, and only one has given it. And today you have heard the good news of this one who gave it. And pardon has been offered to you. So if you are hearing my voice today, you can never stand before God and say, I didn't know. I didn't know that my best wasn't good enough. You've heard it today, friend. So please, we plead with you to repent of your sins and look to the perfect one before God snatches your life away from you and you find yourself in eternity. Do not listen to the lisp of the serpent or the unbelieving world, his children. But hear what the sinless Son of God said. The one who secured the covenant of grace whereby you can be saved. He said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Unbelieving friend, do not find yourself among the crowd on the last day that falls under the condemning words of Jesus that many were called, but few were chosen. Repent and believe today. Hear the words of the sinless Son of God as you think about the coexist crowd and all that the world and the lies that it's teaching you. Hear his word when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, I hope that your people are lifting up before you in their own hearts and minds right now, the unbelievers among us, whether children or adults. We plead, Father, for your mercy in their lives. Oh, Father, give them ears to hear Give them hearts that will believe. Regenerate them, Father, that they would desire to repent of their sins and look to your Son in faith. Oh, Father, and for us, who you have been so merciful and gracious to calls these words of this sermon today to lift our hearts, to bubble up out of them uncontrollable praise and thanksgiving. Oh, Father, the work that your Son did for us, as we stood condemned in Adam, as our brother, Pastor Scott, read at the beginning. You showed your love for us. And that while we were still sinners, while we were still your enemies, your son died for us. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you that we are not under the burden of the covenant of works, that the law is not a covenant for us, but that you have set us free from sin, death. You have given us your son's righteousness. You have given us a desire that now the law we once hated, we look to and we rejoice as we see that it is good, it is righteous, it is holy. Oh, Father, help us rejoice in these things, to realize that in giving that your spirit to us, 
and renewing our wills, you have liberated us to live in a manner pleasing to you that we can't obey. And Father, we long for the day of our Lord's appearing when what has been sown corruptible, what will return to dust will be raised incorruptible. We long for that day when we will no longer be able to sin against you. Thank you, Father, for what you have accomplished through your Son and the covenant of grace for your people. Oh, Father, you have saved us. You have sealed us with your Spirit. We ask that you would fill us with him to do that which you have left us to labor until your Son returns. Help us now as we reflect on these things. Help us to grow. Use this day in our lives as a means of preserving us to the end. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen.